Hi, everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. This week, we're going to be doing a Mike pick, the 1947 film noir masterpiece by Jacques Tournay, Out of the Past. I once asked you how much you would pay to sit in a bar with William Holden. And without hesitation, your answer was, do you remember your answer? $100,000. $100,000. So here's my next question for you. How much bourbon do you think Robert Mitchum could hold before he showed even the slightest signs? Two gallons. Two gallons. You're correct. So that's our silly way of introducing this film. But Mike, this was one of your picks. What is it about Out of the Past that you love so much? The movie shouldn't work. There's... uh when when you watch a traditional film noir, when you watch, let's go with something also written by James M. Cain, when you go to Double Indemnity, the girl shows up, the femme fatale shows up 10 minutes into the movie, uh, carries the whole movie, you get two or three different locations at the most, right? You get the store, the inside of his apartment, her house, and the office, and that's it. You can keep track of all the moving parts so everybody understands you know, when you watch Double Indemnity, why the guy from the train showing up in the insurance office and, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? Like, why that's so tense. Uh, There's moral ambiguity, but there's very little ambiguity other than that. There's no ambiguity of set. There's no ambiguity of character. There's no ambiguity of motivation. Out of the past is full of ambiguity. The scenes themselves don't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you would lie down on the sand and get up and have nothing cling to you. It doesn't make sense why human beings appear out of uh, beams of light uh, and and walk towards you. Everything is done in almost a mythic haze that that takes place in a in a reality that resembles ours. Like if people get shot, they still die, but it is not quite our same uh, our same reality. And there's a lot of elements in this film that should make it clunky, and yet it's totally smooth. It has the same uh, suspension as like a 1996 Lincoln Town car. It's as smooth as it could possibly be. Yeah, it works in the moment because if somebody um, said to you right now, explain to me the whole plot behind the frame where they send him to get the tax records and stuff, you'd be like, ah, you know, it makes sense when you watch it. And it, that's even beside the point. But like you said about ambiguity, there's so many things that are not explained. Like, like why is the deaf kid so loyal to Robert Mitchum? Like for that long flashback, he never enters the flashback. You never find out why they're together, why he's so loyal to, to the point of lying at the end. I think we understand that. We'll see that at the end. But there's a lot that's unexplained here. And it's, you're right, in Double Indemnity, plot is like a uh, like a Swiss watch where it's perfect. And you see how, and the joy of Double Indemnity is watching that, that clock tick. But in this one, it's a different kind of watch with pieces. You're not really sure why they're there. And there might be some pieces missing, but it still tells time. The only way I can describe it is that Double Indemnity is a universe made out of words that was made into a movie, but Out of the Past really is about images. And it works the same way that memory works. You can kind of, you have a memory of yourself and someone else or a silhouette or something that's in your mind, but you're not, you know that you got there somehow, but you can't quite remember how, and you know that something happened or you can remember a rough sequence, but not an exact sequence. It works like pictures out of a dream. And so it's it's kind of thinking in pictures made into pictures and it, it works somehow better as a movie. Um, I love both Double Indemnity and Out of the Past, but if I could only watch one of them over and over and over, uh, I would watch Jane Greer and Robert Mitchum. So you've read Double Indemnity, right? Absolutely. And all the other books, the famous books by James M. Cain, like The Postal Always Rings Twice, like Mildred Pierce, which are also great movies. But as you just said, the thrill and the fun of reading Double Indemnity is and that it works like a clock. The thrill of Out of the Past is all these images that come back and, you know, that soak in and out of your brain. And like you forget that you're in a flashback. That's a great movie trick, right? That you forget that he's telling the whole story to Anne in the car. 
And then we get, and that makes perfect sense because in a film about the past coming up to you, you have to have this impressionistic kind of flashback where you don't know if it's documentary footage of what Robert Mitchum was doing in Mexico, but it's his impression of what Jane Greer was like and his impression of what kind of person she was and, and how he reacted to finding out she really did steal the $40,000 and those kinds of things. Well, it, it's what makes motivations make sense. Double indemnity, if you really think about it, doesn't make a ton of sense why a guy would be willing to kill uh, after one conversation because all film noir works on compression. Uh, compression of time, compression of character, compression of location. But having out of the past tell you that it's going to be made of memories and it's going to have the same kind of fugue structure as memory, that compression makes total sense. Talk for a moment about what is it what it is about Robert Mitchum that you like so much in this movie. Other actors in film noir are acting and Robert Mitchum is natural. He's He is to uh, acting in noir what Chekhov is to writing. It's just the most natural voice uh, that that you're going to get on the screen. Yeah, it reminded me of what our joke was about Sterling Hayden, where it, like you almost wonder, does he know there's a movie going on that they're shooting a movie because he's so natural and so good in it. Yeah, Sterling Hayden is is crazy, but Robert Mitchum is just born cool. Okay, welcome back. In part two, we talked about our favorite scenes, key moments, etc. Dan, I think you have a classic one lined up for Out of the Past. I sure do, but I got to work up to it, okay? So bear with me for a moment. When we did the umbrellas of Sheerborg, we talked about that operatic convention of everybody singing and how the viewer gets used to it after a while and how well it suits the content and how I think you said, or one of us said that it, it's not strange after five minutes, right? Because it seems so, so, so apt. Well, here I'd offer a similar idea. When you watch Out of the Past, the endless, I mean, endless returns and comebacks and one-upmanship and wisecracks, they're like singing. It's like these characters are singing to each other in that language for 90 minutes. And those are the means by which these people in this world communicate. There's only one person who doesn't communicate that way. And that's the deaf kid who's, who's beyond language. And I think just as all the singing in musicals is to suggest what you know Wordsworth would call the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, here, all the dialogue reveals an attitude of its own, right? And now sometimes that attitude is to undermine what we'd call normal, you know, human emotions and normal relationships. Like it's, it's a stuff of comedy, right? So, you know, Eel says, um, you know, all women are wonders because they reduce all men to the obvious. And Maida says, so do martinis. And, you know, Robert Mitchum says, get out. I have to sleep in this room, right? How big of a chump can you be? I was finding out. Um, she says, is there a way to win? He says, there's a way to lose more slowly. So there's a lot of jokes in there. But when you, as the film goes on, so many of these wisecracks that they quote unquote sing to each other reveal like a deep, deep nihilism, a, a deep cynicism toward the world, toward other people and toward themselves. And, and it's almost like, um, it's like a revolt against the world having any kind of meaning. So Kathy says, I prayed, you prayed, Kathy, right? Um, Kirk Douglas says, Joe couldn't find a prayer in the Bible, right? Um, Anne says to him, well, she can't be all bad, no one is. And he says, well, she comes the closest. Um, Jeff says at one point, uh, you know, you're like the leaf that the wind blows from one gutter to the other. Kathy says, I don't want to die. And he says, neither do I, baby. But if I have to, I'm going to die last. And of course, that's epitomized by the famous, famous line. You know, she says, Jeff, don't you believe me? And he says, baby, I don't care. Baby, I don't care. So I think that it, it's fascinating to me how they sing to each other in, in these wisecracks that are meant to be funny or at least ironic, but that reveal a deep, deep, you know, dark version of the world. So that's my, that's my take. That's my moment, baby. I don't care, but I do care about your moment. What's yours? 
my moment is when he sees her again for the first time uh, in the villa after he's been told that he's going to be part of this plot by uh, the immortal Kirk Douglas. And what what a performer. I don't even have time to get into how how great and villainous he is. Great in this movie. But um one thing that strikes me if we're going to continue to compare it to something like Double Indemnity, Double Indemnity is all about choices and decisions that characters make. And it it seems to be a movie somewhat about the misuse of free will. This movie is all about the about fate. It's all about being tied to a weight um, that that you can't escape. That's dragging you down to the bottom of the ocean. Double indemnity can be uh, poignant, but and and it can be thrilling, but it can never be tragic. But one of the things about this this movie is, but in the use of its impressionistic images, uh, in the use of its in the use of its silhouettes in the use of characters that are locked into their fate and unable to escape, it can, it can achieve tragedy. Uh, but one of the things is it has to let some, it has to let some air in to make you feel that you can escape. And so the two contrasting moments are when he's in the car with Anne, you feel like he's going to walk in there and he's going to be a different man because he's just talked it over with her and he's spilled her guts. And then he sees her again. And when Anne asks him about it later, he's, she says, did you see her again? Yeah, I saw her again. Did she mean anything to you? And he says, no. But you can tell that even if he despises her, he senses that she is her fate in a way that is that is unescapable. And it, 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 you just said it when you were talking about uh, the, the beauty of the language and the way that they're singing to each other in Wisecracks. Uh, he is determined to die last uh, because he knows that he's that he's going to die and that he's for it and that the whole thing that he's entertaining, the only person who knows that he's not just uh, entertaining some future is Anne. Anne thinks he's serious. Everybody in town knows it's not going to work and he knows it's not going to work. And, and that whole moment is written on his face and on her face when they're together alone in his, in his room and she comes in. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I, you know, of all the gangsters breakfast tables in the world, she walked into mine. So I love what you just said about letting in a little bit of air for, for the possibility of free will. And as you were talking, you know, popped into my head, um, Macbeth. So in Macbeth, he's back and forth. He's nervous. You know, I have this thing. I'd love to, I'd love to be the king. I know there's only one way to get it. And then all of a sudden he finds out Duncan, the king is coming to your castle. And his wife says, here's our move. And you know that he's done. He can argue all he wants. It doesn't matter. And in the same way, Robert Mitchum can argue all he wants against getting back into that relationship, but it's, it's done. It's, it's over as soon as he gets dropped off at Kirk Douglas's house. It's different than the death in the car being a result it's not a result that what this movie is telling you is from the moment that he was a baby and grew up into a man, he's been heading for that car. He's been heading for that state trooper line his entire life. And we're just going to watch the last, let's say 5% of it from the time that he finds out that he's headed to that line to the time that the state trooper opens the car and his body falls out. And, and that's what's, that's, what's utterly tragic and similar. Uh, other people are caught up in the same web. And no, but nobody can escape. Even Anne has her fate, right? The, the yeah. Anne's boyfriend, the guy around town says, you know, uh, I've known her since I tied her roller skates for her. They're fated for one another. And even if she wants to break away from it, she, she can't because the small town in which she grew up is forcing the two of them together. There's a trajectory other than free will that's moving human beings through their lives. And that's what this movie is out to highlight. And Robert Mitchum thinks she's gotten away from that. So I have a new name. You know, I'm Jeff Bailey. I sell gas. That's all I do. And he has a wisecrack about it. Like you may have heard it. People sell things to each other. It's called, you know, commerce or something. But it's about the people's struggle to get to, to get away from that force of the past. 
But again, you know, to your to your point, yes, he's he's got the gas station, but he's shirking his duties. He's off with a woman. He's got somebody watching his station and and set to come give him a secret code if things go down. And he's still on the watch. And yes. so he can change his name all he wants, but the character is essentially the same person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about the ending. Let's talk about Robert Mitchum's death in part three. Great. Welcome back. In part three, we always talk about the ending and the title. We've talked about the both of these a little bit, but Mike, I want to ask you this. She runs upstairs. Robert Mitchum picks up the phone, calls the calls the state troopers. He knows they're going to be waiting for them. She shoots him. You know that you can call that whatever kind of poetic justice you want. He falls out of the car. To what extent is he aware that he is not getting out of that car alive? Because you talked about ambiguity before, right? And there is a kind of a, a like, you know, almost hoping against hope because we're on this journey with him. We know it can't end well, but movies have trained us to think that yes, he might, she might not get away. He probably will but he gets put into this trap by fate. What do you make of that? How, how aware is he? He drives into the police barricade. He's look, he knows exactly which roads they'll be watching and he drives into it with her in the car. Uh, and so you can say that he, his, the extent of his free will is that he sees the way that the trajectory is moving and he decides to move with it. But that's the most lat- latitude that you can give him. Uh, otherwise, there's nothing else. And let's talk about the very, very ending. What do you make of... Uh, the the deaf kid lying to Anne. Well, you said the deaf kid is beyond language. And yeah. to that sense, he's really a figure of fate from the beginning, right? Justice is blind, but fate is constantly screaming and signing to him exactly what his fate will be the entire time. And it's only at the end that he learns to n- interpret. He learns the, the sign language of fate that tells him what's going what's gonna to happen to him. And that's why I think that the, I get chills every time the movie opens with the kid and ends with the kid, because it's it's a, a, an absence of free will from the very beginning and the symmetry in the beginning and the end of, of the presence of fate. That same force of fate that's moving them communally, uh, um, Anne and her boyfriend together uh, to, to be married and be a couple is actually entered in at, by the kid and he becomes the vehicle of that. Basically. Yeah, he lets, it, he lets it happen. He makes he, it happen. Yeah, he makes it, you're right, correct. He makes it happen, right? Now, of course, the ending of this film reminded me of what, the ending of what famous novel? Sun Also Rises? No. It reminded me of Heart of Darkness. So Marlowe, as you remember, goes back to see Kurtz's intended, as she's called, his fiance. And she says, I have to know what were his final words. Now, Marlowe knows that Kurtz's final words were the horror, the horror. And he says to, Mar- to Kurtz's intended, the last words he pronounced were, and there's even a dash, and then he says, your name. And she says, I knew it. I knew it. And Marlowe was disgusted with himself, but he couldn't, he says, to, to have lied to her would have been too dark altogether. And he, he ran out of the house. He says, he felt the darkness encroaching around me, that everything is not based upon this lie. It's a comforting lie. And it's, there's something similar going on there. Even were he able to communicate, the kid would, the kid, the kid lies to save her, to, to let her get married, to save her, like, go on. You, don't worry about Jeff anymore. It's a lie, but it's, it's a functional lie. It's a lie that gets the social order back intact the way that Marlowe's does. Yes and no, but I'm with you to the extent that uh, obviously he's never going to join forces with her, um, but in a way, the kid is telling the truth. In a way, he's by going back to her and by driving into the police barricade, he's acknowledging that their that their fates are intertwined and that he is never meant for Anne. So well, it, kid... it, it is a lie, but it's also the truth. <laughs> well, remember, the kid doesn't know that Robert Mitchum is the one that called the state troopers. He doesn't, the kid only knows Robert Mitchum ran away with Jane Greer. He doesn't know everything you do and that I do as watching the film. 
he's in enough on it to have murdered the assassin who's following Robert Mitchum. So what so what I'm going to give him credit for is an understanding of his heart, his mind and his schemes. He knows that probably there's no there's no stopping it, but he's going to do his best to make sure as many people are are culpable, you know, and the the death of Kirk Douglas is villain his villainous character at the hands of Jane Greer and then the sacrifice of Robert Mit- Robert Mitchum sacrifices himself to make sure essentially that Jane Greer is caught, that her evil doesn't get get out in the world. She wants to take the millions of dollars and go and go live in in their own private disgusting hell. Um, and he's just not having it. And the kid knows that, of course, not by talking to Robert Mitchum, but just by being around him. Be- because he's he's the figure of fate. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Out of the Past. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, we're at 15MIN Film. There's other ways you can support the show as well. We'll be talking about those. And we hope you'll tell us what to watch. We hope you enjoy this. Please rate and review the podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Hi, everybody. We are so glad about the response we've had to this podcast, which we began a year ago. It's gone bigger and bigger beyond what we ever thought it would become. And we want to let you know just about a couple of easy ways to support the show. Okay, so first, you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at 15MINFILM. That's 15, the number, MINFILM. And you can now support the show through Venmo. If you like what we're doing, you can send us a dollar or two. Anything helps. And all the money is going to go back into the show and to upgrade our equipment. Yeah, that's what we're going to do that to upgrade the equipment to pay for podcast hosting. And if you and if you send us anything on Venmo, let us know in the message what movies you want us to do. We take requests. We've taken requests already. We're always looking for new ideas. We love connecting with our listeners. Now at Venmo, you can send us the Venmo at 15 Minute Film. It's spelled out. The, the number 15 is spelled out. 15 Minute Film. We, we'd love to hear from you. Again, a, a buck a season would be great, but anything you want to send us would be very, very appreciated. And like Mike said, it all goes right back into the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing.